welcome to the menu on Native America Calling, our regular feature on Native food and food stories. I'm Andy Murphy. Sean Sherman, Oglala Lakota chef and well-known advocate for Indigenous food sovereignty, adds Time 100 to his list of recognitions. Kickapoo chef Crystal Wapipa goes head-to-head with celebrity chef Bobby Flay on the Food Network, and we'll learn how all the tribes in Wisconsin are contributing to a tribal elder food box program. That's on the menu after National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Navajo leaders say they're deploying all necessary resources to assist residents being impacted by flooding in Chinle, Arizona. Flooding began Friday when a berm from a wash running through the community fell to hold back rising water. Resources have been deployed from across the Navajo Nation to help. The Office of the President is providing flooding updates on social media. Navajo Nation President Boo Nigren says the full force of the Navajo Nation has been made available to assist the community. The Vice President of the Tribe, Rochelle Montoya, has been on site and has met with families being impacted. Assistance has also come from the county, the American Red Cross, and local residents. Reconstruction of the berm is underway. The Navajo Nation declared a state of emergency in January for the ongoing need of resources, which is helping address the Chinle flooding. The American Red Cross has opened a shelter to help people in the area. Tribal colleges in Minnesota hope the state legislature will help with funding needs. Tribal college leaders say the schools teach students and help maintain Native language and culture. Mike Moen has more. Tribal colleges not only teach students, They're also institutions that maintain Native American languages and cultural history. In Minnesota, these schools hope the legislature gives them a funding boost. A bill this session would set aside $3 million in each year of the next biennium. The state's three tribal colleges could apply for grants for general operation and maintenance expenses. Leech Lake Tribal College President Helen Montgomery says it would be transformative for her school. She says they could use funds to add more learning space and get up-to-date resources for STEM courses. Certainly a lot of the learning that we do is outside, and we do have programs that teach an Indigenous perspective on not just science, but the environment. It would be really great to have some modern equipment. She says the funds could also help remove student aid barriers and provide staff a cost-of-living wage increase she describes as long overdue. Tribal colleges get most of their funding from the federal government, and leaders say it covers only the bare minimum. Montgomery says helping schools like hers allows them to keep offering a culturally inclusive environment where Native students can ease into the college setting. She says these individuals don't have to feel isolated as they navigate their higher education path. We would be able to hire personnel or create experiences that help our students bridge the tribal college setting to the four-year setting. According to the Post-Secondary National Policy Institute, 41% of first-time, full-time Native American students attending four-year colleges graduate within six years, compared to 63% for all students. That was Mike Moen reporting. 
A new round of grant funding for projects in Michigan that highlight tribes and Native Americans in the state is now opened by the Native American Heritage Fund. K-12 schools, higher education institutions, and local governments may be eligible for funding. Board Chair Jamie Stuck says while other states like New York are banning the use of Native American mascots, the Heritage Fund is proud to provide the opportunity and funding to make culturally appropriate changes in the state. The grants are intended to promote positive relationships and accurate information about the history and role of Michigan's tribes and Native Americans. Projects could include things like events and art or help remove mascots and imagery. The Heritage Fund was created in 2016 through the Tribal State Gaming Compact, which allocates the funds. Since then, funding has helped with the removal of imagery from 12 schools and two municipalities with more than $2 million in distributions. Applications will be accepted through mid-June. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Vision Maker Media, envisioning a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. 45 plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org. Support by the Gathering of Nations Powwow, a live event taking place April 27th, 28th, and 29th on the powwow grounds of Expo New Mexico, featuring song, dance, trader's market, horse parade, and more. Tickets available at gatheringofnations.com and at the gates. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is The Menu on Native America Calling, our regular show on indigenous food and food sovereignty. I'm Andy Murphy, producer and resident foodie here. In this hour, we'll catch up with two well-known chefs about their recent stints in the limelight. Sean Sherman was just named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People of 2023. He's listed along with folks like Michael B. Jordan, Colin Farrell, Pedro Pascal, and dozens of other changemakers and big thinkers. Sh uh, chef uh, Crystal Wapipa showcased indigenous food in one of the most nerve-wracking situations, too, a timed challenge against celebrity chef Bobby Flay. Also on the menu this hour, the Tribal Elder Food Box Program. It's a successful idea that grew from two or three tribes to all 11 tribes in Wisconsin. We'll learn about how farmers, tribes, and community members came together to make traditional and local foods accessible to elders. You can join our conversation too. Tell us about the native foods and food sovereignty programs you're excited about in your community. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from New York City is Sean Sherman. He's the co-founder of Awanmi, the sous chef and natives. That's North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems. He's Oglala Lakota. Welcome to the menu on Native America Calling, Sean. Thanks for having me, Andy. 
Yeah, thank you so much. You're actually taking time, a little bit of time away from being at the Time 100 Summit to be on the show. So thank you so much. Um, tell, tell us what's going on at the summit. Um, we're just watching a bunch of speakers. So we've seen people like Steven Spielberg, John Legend, um, uh, Mark Ruffalo, Nancy Pelosi is coming up. Um, and there's just a lot of really interesting people talking about uh, the work that they do. Um, and tomorrow is the big gala where they'll be featuring a lot of, uh, a lot of people, especially like myself, who's one of the, uh, the one of the 100 for this year. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, so, so, you know, seven years ago when I first came across you and your work and, um, you know, we, uh, shortly after that, we had you on Native America Calling, um, did you think you'd ever be in this situation, you know, thinking about, you know, seven years ago, 10 years ago, you think you'd be in this situation you are now? No, not really. I mean, because for me, I just really wanted to get the work out there. I just really obviously, you know, have this vision of just wanting to see modern indigenous foods um, highlighted. Um, and, you know, I had a pretty good vision of how that could happen. So we just kept moving and kept growing. And, you know, we just keep opening up more doors and uh, hopefully it helps more people. Um, so we're just excited. I'm excited to to this point where we are. And I know that I, I still feel like we're just kind of just starting you know. <laughs> right. It, it seems like there's a lot more work to do, especially with the the the, the organization Natives and the uh, Indigenous Food Labs. What, what's going to happen um, in the future? What can we see from those uh, uh, projects and that work? Well, we're just going to continue to showcase and highlight Indigenous foods. Um, I'm going to be back in New York in a couple of weeks uh, with some Indigenous Food Lab team and with our friends from Pioche Food Group with Justin and his sister. And we're going to be putting on some dinners at the uh, brand new James Beard Foundation space in Chelsea in Manhattan. So it'll be there May 7th through the 11th. Um, but with the nonprofit, you know, we're already just finalizing our space in Minneapolis. We're about ready to launch a native market space. We'll be able to sell a lot of native food product and also make a lot of food product for the market. And we have a digital classroom to share a lot of indigenous-focused education and curriculum. And we're getting ready to replicate that whole model. So we're already planting seeds to open those in Anchorage, Bozeman, and Rapid City um, and beyond. We have a lot of interest. So we're just going to keep growing, working on food distribution, working on education. And, you know, there's a lot of pieces to it. And the restaurants uh, in Minneapolis is shut down for the moment because of a fire. But we should be open in a couple of weeks, fingers crossed, yeah. and back to normal there. So that's been a great venture, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned um, uh, Justin Pioche or Pioche. Um, I just had uh, one of his private dinners uh, last week for the first time. That was my, yeah, that was the first time uh, um, having uh, his his food. And he's been on the show before. He was uh, nominated as a uh, James Beard uh, Southwest Chef uh, semifinalist, and now he's a finalist. So um, that that's pretty cool. That uh, you know he's going to be in um, you know New York with you at the James Beard House. I mean, what does it mean for a chef to be um, uh, associated with the James Beard Foundation and House in that way? It's just a nice platform to be able to utilize and to uh, just showcase the work that we do. You know, because James Beard has helped to amplify a lot of the work. Um, so I have three James Beard awards now today with Best Restaurant in the U.S. last year with a Leadership Award and with also uh, the cookbook that came out in 2017. 
Um, so I think it's just a really important place to hold, and I wanted to bring you know people with me to to, to share on that stage and just talk about our stories and our perspectives. Right, right. So, um, you know, you're you're uh, branching out with. Um the BIPOC Foodways Alliance. Um, what what do, what is that, and how does that fit into uh, your ongoing uh, food mission? Yeah, so that's a new nonprofit that I've been helping my partner Mecca Boss. She's a black food writer in Minneapolis um, to get up and going, and we just talk a lot about BIPOC stories and the intersection that we have with food, um, and how we can really try to come together as BIPOC people to really tell relevant stories, to tell our own food stories, and to, you know, hopefully, you know, overcome some hurdles out there. And, uh, you know, it's a fun project, and we're just going to see where it goes. Right, right. So lots of lots of work to be done. Um, how, how much time do you get to spend uh, lately just being at home, being in Minneapolis? <laughs> Unfortunately, not a lot. I'm on another run right now. I saw you in Vegas. And, you know, I'm in New York now and I'm here. I go to Duke University and then to Google in San Francisco to do some food testing and then a dinner in Rapid City to do uh, 250 people for murdered and missing indigenous women Mm -hmm. Um, and then back to New York for that residency at James Beard. And so I don't even get home until the 12th of May on this run. Wow. <laughs> wow. What are, you know, in, in all your travels, um, what are some of the things, I guess, maybe the most important uh, lessons or, um, yeah, lessons you've learned from uh, folks you've, you've visited on the road? I just think it's great to be able to travel around um, uh, with this kind of decolonized focus um, looking at land space through that indigenous perspective and just lens in general, um, and just learning a lot, you know, so be able to experience like different cultures, different people, different communities, all the different wonderful food that we have everywhere, and just experiencing all that diversity firsthand. And I'm actually working on a second cookbook that will kind of showcase a lot of that diversity. So looking at North America from Mexico through Alaska, and just really trying to, you know, see what that looks like for people so they can, you know, think about the land they're standing on, think about the communities that were there, think about the histories and the struggles we had to go through as indigenous peoples and just the beauty of all the food that we have everywhere. Right, right. Um, so what do you, what do you, you know, I think this is something a, a lot of us uh, really um, wonder about folks who have a spotlight uh, spotlight like yours. Uh, what sort of things do you have to endure, you know, being in the spotlight all the time? I know you kind of mentioned and talked about, uh, you know, being away from home a lot, uh, you know, it, it, being in the spotlight like this, um, you know, helps your projects along, but does it bring uh, maybe some unwanted attention or anything like that? You know, because I can be an easy target just because people know who I am. So, you know, sometimes social media will <clears throat> be social media. and But, you know, for me, I just really try to stay true and focused to the work that we're doing. I just feel like we have this beautiful, unique opportunity to make some changes, you know, and especially if I can do some changes directly where I grew up around Pine Ridge and really work on food access, really work on education access. That To me, that's the driving force. And, you know, I'm almost 50, so I feel like I've got a good chunk of years to continue to do this amazing work, Um, but I just want to try and get as much done as possible before I step aside for other people to take over. 
Right, right. And, you know, you're mentioning um, so much work, but, uh, you know, of course, there's a there's a larger team uh, behind you. Talk about your team a little bit and uh, where, you know, some of this work you mentioned happens. Yeah, I mean, because at Awamni, you know, in the summer, in the height of summer last year, we had 150 employees and 70% of our staff identified as Indigenous, um, which is, you know, a really great number for especially um, the, especially in Minneapolis. And, you know, it's just a really wonderful project. And our nonprofit at Native and the Indigenous Food Lab is growing fast, too. Um, and we're just excited to get this final, this final model um, all set up and open to the public so we can just keep on moving and sharing this vision and putting it into other regions and just keep building our team, you know. So, you know, we're, we went through some organizational changes just because we grew so fast, but we're just really positive about what we can do now moving forward. And, um, yeah, so we're, uh, it's, we're in a really good spot. All right. And um, before we let you go and before we get to break here, what, what kind of advice would you give to uh, maybe young uh, Indigenous culinary students or, or people who are um, interested in working um, for uh, food sovereignty? Yeah, I mean, I think that we should all play a part in food sovereignty somehow, whether we're growing food, tending the land, um, raising animals, um, processing foods um, for the market, processing foods for a community, um, creating restaurant concepts or food truck concepts or catering concepts. And I just encourage people, you know, who are starting and interested just to reach out to some of us that have some of these pieces like myself or Crystal or, you know, or you know, like Ben and Takabe up in Denver and, you know, just talk to some of the people that are in the food sovereignty movement because we have a lot of open doors because, you know, I'm hoping to bring a lot of people in to train and develop with us and just be a support center to help more indigenous culinary out there for the future. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Sean, and congratulations again. Um, we'll be back after this break. The social media platform Twitter was originally heralded as a real-time public forum, but its recent revival of racist accounts and a series of questionable decisions has subscribers and advertisers leaving in droves. We'll talk about the principle and practicality of using Twitter on the next Native America Calling. You're listening to The Menu on Native America Calling, our regular feature on Indigenous food news and food stories. I'm producer and host Andy Murphy. We're talking to two of the most well-known Indigenous indigenous chefs today, uh, Sean Sherman and Crystal Wapipa. You can join our conversation, too. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Uh, joining us now from Oakland, California, is Crystal Wapipa. She's the owner and chef of Wapipa's Kitchen, and she is Kickapoo. Welcome back to The Menu on Native America Calling, Crystal. 
Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. Uh, So I wanted to bring you in to kind of give us a play-by-play of your time on the Food Network show, uh, Beat Bobby Flay. Uh, uh, Could we uh, kind of spoil the episode? Um, Did you you end up beating Bobby Flay? No, I end up not beating Bobby (laughs) Flay. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty tough. I mean, I don't know what the ratio of, uh, you know, wins and losses uh, for for Bobby Flay, but he's, you know, he's he's a pretty tough competitor, I think. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, t- tell us about the, the, your your dish and uh, what you made. Um, I hear there's like a first round and maybe a second round. How did it go? Well, I made it to the first round, and um, you know, given the opportunity to um, be on um, Bobby Flay and also Food Network for the second time, I said, "Why not?" Um, I had fun, um, but at the same time, when I do these different um, things, um, I, you know, there's a certain purpose, and that's one um, letting other people see Native chefs on a national television, and then the other. Um, you really, it's it's different um, when you're on, on the set than you see on TV. And so you really have this limited time of, to come up with the dish. And so they gave me escarot, which I really wasn't familiar with, but I heard of it, but it wasn't familiar. And once I tasted it, it was really, really bitter. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, what am I going to do with this? And um, you you're actually um, competing in a live audience. So there's like around 100 people yelling at you (laughs) and telling you to grab this, telling you to grab that. And I just end up grabbing to what I know and what I always gravitate to, and that is berries. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, So so what is escrow? It is like a, well, for me, it's like, it's, it's, a French. Um, it is a bitter, like a bitter lettuce. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of related to me when I tasted it. It's bitter than a green. If you had um, some collard greens, um, it is bit way bitter than that. And so you really have to break it down. So um, I was on the right track of, mm-hmm. you know, when it comes to texture, taste and flavor, um, how am I going to break this down? So that's when I incorporated different berries and I kind of broke it down with maple, of course. And, um, you know, it got really nice and sweet and savory when you have, you're dealing with like bitter lettuce, you want to kind of, you know, let kind of, kind of chill it out just a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. So, so what was uh, I guess the the biggest criticism from the judges? Oh well, I had a little minutes that I was playing with. I was fairly confident with my dish, and um, I I said I don't know why it just popped out at me. It was some culinary sage, and I grabbed a little bit of the culinary sage, and I end up making like. Um, um, escarole bowl and where I put my lettuce and then topped it with my berries and then from there I just added just a little bit of it but one of the judges ended up having it um, like a really kind of thick flake part which was Mm. a no-no which I even knew but when you're in the moment and you're creating these different you know you only got 20 minutes and to actually execute this and so when when I realized after when it said time up I realized 
Oh, I shouldn't edit that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think that's something that we can all relate to, um, but we don't have like a a panel of judges to try to satisfy. (laughs) Yes. And the panel of judges were from Law and Order. Oh, (laughs) okay. It was called. Yes, it was called the crime scene, but um, other than that, I had a I had a really good time. Um, um, you know, when it comes to like having the opportunity, um, as for the competition show, you know, on that part. But honestly, I just really wanted to go to represent, and also, I've been a fan of Bobby Flay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe at home eating dinner, and then you would watch his show. Not not so much of beat Bobby Flay, but the other shows that he had in the previous years, because I'm a, you know, I'm a little older. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I always liked his technique of his cooking. And so um, he didn't disappoint, I do have to say. Right, right. Um, uh, What was the dish that he made? Um, He actually ended up going against um, Adrian Black. Um, he ended up losing to Adrian, so mm. me and Bobby got beat. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yes, and it was um, um, a Vietnamese um, Thai kind of food, mm. and so um, yeah, <laughs> it was. He had to do like a like a um, a crepe, some kind of crepe. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's cool. Um, so, so, what do you hope audiences there and across the country uh, learned about you and your dedication to indigenous food? Ooh. Um, well, what what I what they learned also is um, when it comes to like indigenous berries, and that's something where um, I grew up on and where um, I'm very comfortable. And also at the same time, I feel that um, we haven't really been represented um, just because of like on TV, things like that. And so I just want to, at the end of the day, create a space where somebody can come in um, and you know, I can hold that space down where, when, you know, I just feel like I'm a space creator, or, you know, where I can have somebody come in. And also at the same time is um, just representing um, with when it becomes with like native chefs or even people that are, have the curiosity of, you know, like there is opportunity out there. And I just want to let everybody know that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and you, you know you're definitely doing that with uh, uh, your restaurant, uh, Wapipa's Kitchen. Um, how how has uh, business been going so far? It looks like you're getting a lot of uh, media attention, um, a lot of uh, you know opportunities for you to take up that space in uh, different areas across. Um, you know, not even not uh, physically, but of course, you know, in the media. How, how has uh, that um, uh, been for you? Um, it's been a lot, um, in a good way in the part where, um, I've never expected, like, you know, um, I was, you know, in a certain position where either I was going to do it or I wasn't going to open the restaurant. And when I did open the restaurant, nobody can actually prepare you, (laughs) prepare you for this. But also at the same time, I really try to stay very humble and actually grounded and ask myself why, how come, because at the same time, it's, you know, when I opened Wapi Pass Kitchen, it was just me and my three daughters. And now I have a whole full staff and I have chefs um, that also are indigenous and wants to contribute um, in food sovereignty, what 
you know, what we're doing, especially here in the urban area and the community. We're in like in a city and it's fast paced, fast moving, but also at the same time, um, I want everybody to have that connection when it comes to our foods as much as I have that connection with, have, I have the connection with, but also um, I have my three daughters that work in the restaurant and eventually, you know, I hope just to um, pass something along, like when it comes to Native foodways, um, the indigenous food movement and actually um, protecting our foods and serving our foods and understanding and educating other people that comes into the restaurant. It's been such um, beautiful, beautiful journey um us as opening the restaurant but there's always you know it's very it's i can't say it's hard but it's beautiful beautiful hard and also a lot um when it comes to um having the restaurant having staff and me coming from a catering background it's a totally different atmosphere ball game and so we're just now getting back into actually ringing in that catering and so this is where it comes to me of delegating you know um how i see and what i want when i see the youth and people coming in and adding something beautiful in a historical trauma area Right, right. And it seems like it's coming full circle for you. I mean, you were a uh, caterer at first. I remember talking to you like years ago uh, for the first time on my podcast, uh, Toasted Sister. And uh, you mentioned that um, one of the first cooking gigs you did, it was a catering event, of course. And it was like, it wasn't like 20 people. It was like a couple hundred people. (laughs) Um, that first catering gig you did. Uh, did you back then? Did you ever think you'd be in this place right now that you are in now? No. <laughs> <laughs> I say that real quick. No. Um, I I kind of take day by day, and I really try to just absorb everything and just, you know, I stick close to my prayers and ask creator, what do you want? And um, at the same time, it's a beautiful journey, especially when you get to see people from all over the world come to your restaurant Mm -hmm. and mainly in the community, when they come in, it just warms my heart. And we were right by the Native American Health here in Oakland. We have different Native American organizations around in the surrounding area. We have an indigenous school on top. And so when they come in, you know, it's really, it's the most, it's really um, beautiful to see when people are actually contributing to different areas when it comes to our community, when it comes to health, mental, when it comes to food. Um, you, you know, we're getting ready. We're taking my whole team. We're getting ready to plan for our ne- um, plant for our next harvest, how we collaborate with other um, indigenous farms. And we have a BIPOC farm. It is becoming really full circle and beautiful. Nice, nice. And uh, one thing you're you're also, um, you know, another title uh, you have uh, under your belt there is um, you're on the American Culinary Corps. Is that right? Yes. 
Yeah, yeah. We had um, uh, Blue Adams, who's also an you know another chef and uh, restaurateur, on the show uh, a couple months ago to talk about the whole program and everything. But uh, what do you hope to bring to um, you know the visitors uh, when they come here for you know Department of State uh, functions? Oh, number one, to let them know um, whose land that they're on and where the food comes from. And this is um, where the original land stewards on that. And just to have the opportunity to serve our foods. Um, we're now in 2023, and um, we have an opportunity um, to actually um, educate people. You don't have to speak with them directly, but you can educate them um, through on a plate and where food comes from. So that's one of the reasons why I accepted this opportunity. Um, let alone, you know, I've been really fortunate to um, work with Sean and, um, you know, actually have a conversation. I'll be seeing Blue here pretty soon. Um, I'm really excited of what is taking place for the future generation. All right. That's pretty cool. Um, and, you know, you've, uh, of course, been, I, I want to go back to uh, TV food competition shows. <laughs> you've been on uh, Beat Bobby Flay and you've been on Chopped uh, um, a couple years ago. You were the first Native uh, contestant on uh, Chopped, but, um, uh, um, you know, and then, you know, you also mentioned that uh, you watched a lot of uh, Bobby Flay shows. Um, do you do you watch other uh, food competition shows? That seems to be like what's mostly on Food Network now, right? Um, believe it or not, I um, I didn't I never I watched. Bobby Flay beforehand when he had just his regular cooking show, mm -hmm. even when it came to Chopped, I seen a couple of episodes and then um, I seen Bobby Flay just a couple of episodes. Um, but at the same time, you know, they were calling me and calling me and asking me to come on. And I said, why not? But then this is where I should know from the first time <laughs> to kind of watch the show. But I'm so busy. <laughs> and I always tell myself, you know, by the time I end up getting home, I'm just kind of tired. And so I end up watching the show right before I'm like literally on set. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> it's like streaming on your phone, sitting there in the yes. makeup room. <laughs> All at the last minute. But at the end of the day, you can watch many shows you want until you're in that position. Uh -huh. And when the clock starts ticking and then, you know, it's like, you know, it's the, the word is your oyster right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, how, how important, though, are, are these shows? Um, not just the competition shows, but just uh, uh, sitting there and watching people cook and talk about uh, food. How important is that? Oh, it's 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 very important just because of um, where we're at today. Um, um, FYI, it's my last competition show, <laughs> but, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but um, it's very important. It's very important because um, when you um, when you see one of your own people cooking on TV, I know I get excited when I see the Res Dogs. You know, when I mm. see I, you know, I get you know, you can have that connection with, and I think this is something that's been absent so long on TV when it comes to how can we relate to something that is not within like our culture and them cooking and I feel that it's very important so um, when I get the opportunity why not right 
Right. You know, I, I think I learned how to cook just by watching um, all of these food shows on uh, Food Network. I mean, like classic Food Network, you know, the I think that um, channel or that uh, network has really changed over time. It's become like uh, cooking shows where, um, you know, uh, uh, chefs are cooking and talking about food and making a couple of dishes in an episode to now it's like a whole bunch of crazy challenges. Um, but, uh, that, that, I think that's where I learned how to cook, um, early on, you know, 15, uh, 15, 20 years ago, just really being addicted to all of the food shows. So it's really been, um, a positive, uh, TV watching experience for me. Um, we're going to go to a break in just a little bit here. We are talking with Chef Crystal Wapipa of Wapipa's Kitchen over in Oakland, California. Uh, she was just on the Food Network show Beat Bobby Flay. Uh, we'll be back with her after this break um, and talk a little bit more about her mission to, um, you know, increase uh, visibility of indigenous foods, not only in that urban area of California, but across the the country here. Um, after that, we'll visit with some folks or uh, we'll visit with uh, Marlon over in Oneida Nation about a really cool program called the Tribal Elder Food Box Program. You can join our conversation. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Smoking gave me COPD, which makes it harder and harder for me to breathe. I have a tip for you. If your doctor gives you five years to live, spend it talking with your grandchildren. Explain to them that your grandpa's not going to be around anymore to share his wisdom and his love. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. I'm running out of time. COPD makes it harder and harder to breathe and can cause death. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. This is The Menu on Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. This is a regular feature on Indigenous food and food sovereignty. You can join our conversation too. Are there any new Native food sovereignty initiatives happening in your area? Join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. I'm going to go back to our guest in Oakland, California, Crystal Wapipa. She's the owner and chef of Wapipa's Kitchen, and she is Kickapoo. Um, Crystal, uh, Wapipa's Kitchen, uh, for, for audiences who are not familiar with what that's all about and what the menu is, uh, tell us about what's on the menu right now. Ooh, right now we're in my favorite time of the season, so mm. we're actually in our spring um, menu. Um, we have, like, hibiscus taquitos, which is pretty um, much kind of number one on the menu right now. Besides, we have our deer sticks, and then we have, like, um, a berry smoked salmon salad. Nice, nice. And uh, what is the process like for you and some of the other chefs there to come up with a menu? Um, well, 
um, when it, we come up with the menu, it's mainly me. <laughs> it's kind of mainly me, but then I have my I have my other my other chefs that come in and they're like, no, no, kind of. We kind of kind of go like that, <laughs> um, but we we kind of sit down and then we kind of create like when it comes to the appetizers, but we're kind of maneuvering according to like what season that we're in and what's available. Um, we're um, been really blessed and, and honored to add more um, food um, <clears throat> producers up on our menu and add more like when it comes to like we can't wait to go out to the gardens to see what's available like our lettuce is really springing beautifully mm-hmm. and like our edible flowers so um, we kind of just sit there and work together and see what works and what doesn't. This is the beautiful part of about creating menus. Um, we can kind of like um, kind of you can kind of see what works and what doesn't. But then when it comes to the restaurant, we uh, we have like you know our base menu, which is we're kind of really known for our, like our blue cornbread um, <clears throat> and with the maple cream that's on top of it and. Mm. Um, we have like a smoked salmon tostada and we have a bison tostada, things like that. And so we're rich in a deep and indigenous community. So when people come in, um, they'll say, oh, is tostada native? Oh, <laughs> are they have, you know, it's like, you know, we're right in the mix where um, number one street tacos is known for mm. <laughs> and like here in California the street tacos are known for in the Fruitvale area so um, you know we just kind of put our own little spin up on it and we have fun and um, you know we have like one two we have three we have three different chefs that actually add on to you know when it comes to my head chef you know she'll you know have them kind of do expo or we have a culinary student you know we have fun with it and I want them all to be like really creative and just you know um and be who be be who they are because they you could tell they love the food and they love like representing their tribes right right awesome all right. Well, uh, where can people uh, follow Wapipa's Kitchen and uh, where can they find this episode of uh, Beat Bobby Flay? Um, you can find the episode. We still have, um, I believe, like two more live running episodes um, taking place. Um, on It's on Food Network, Beat Bobby Flay. Um, it is season 30. Um, it's called Crime Scene. Um, it's with the law and order people. And um what to like for Wapi Pass Kitchen? Very easy to find. Put you know, you know, you can put Native American restaurant in Oakland, of course. But we're mm. on Instagram and we're on Facebook and Twitter. All right, I think that's um, season thirty-three. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Andy. Yeah, the newest. No problem. All right. Well, thank you so much, Crystal, for joining us. Uh, right now, I'd like to head on over to Oneida, Wisconsin, where we have Marlon Skinnendor. He's the manager for the Oneida Emergency Food Pantry. He's from the Oneida Nation, and he belongs to the Bear Clan. Welcome to the menu on Native America, Colleen Marlin. Hey, it's a good Hello, everyone. 
hello to you. So thank you for joining us. Uh, so I want to uh, ask you about the Tribal Elder Food Box program. That's something I've been seeing on social media come up a whole bunch with uh, a lot of the uh, farmers and uh, food workers that I know in the uh, Midwest area. What is this uh, Tribal Elder Food Box program and uh, what, what kind of foods are in these food boxes? Yeah, so I'll provide you guys with a little bit of backstory. So we're actually going in our third year, um, and May 12th is going to be our first distribution here in Oneida. Um, going back, this kind of uh, historically started from the uh, 638 self-determination project with Fidipper, and then also the, um, the USDA's Farmers to Families food boxes. So those boxes, even though we were appreciative of get the food, uh, we were hearing from our community like, well, I don't use yogurt. Uh, I don't use the dairy products. Why do they keep on giving us chicken? So that whole process became, kind of became corporatized and saving money and efficiency, which is not really what works well here in, you know, in tribal uh, communities. So um, Oneida Nation and Menominee, along with Feeding Wisconsin, kind of birthed uh, the Tribal Elder Food Box back in 2021. I was brought in as a partner because I knew how to distribute boxes. So they said, we're going to give you 400 boxes to distribute to Tribal Elders. Uh, they just have to be 55 plus if they're in your line. It doesn't matter what tribe they are, as long as they're 55 plus, you can pass out those food boxes. So that's a little mm -hmm. bit of the history there. Um, yeah. And then in, 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 in the boxes, you have a variety of things. Some of our proteins are going to be uh, ground pork, pork, uh, grass-fed beef. Sometimes we get um, trout fillets. We get whitefish fillets right from the uh, Red, Lake, uh, Red Cliff Fish Company. Um, and then beef and then bison. Also a little bit of salmon every once in a while. Awesome. And so what goes into uh, distributing food boxes? You mentioned, um, you know, you were approached for this because you knew how to uh, distribute food boxes. What, what, what goes into that? So the number one thing is always food safety because we get this, we get the boxes the day before. So of course we got to keep them refrigerated. Um, then the morning of is usually there's two different proteins. So we'll have I have a team of volunteers that come in, and then we go through those 400 units each of whatever proteins those are, put them in bags, stack them up in boxes, and palletize them. Once we have that, uh, we we have a forklift here, who was donated to us by the Hunger Task Force based out of Milwaukee. We uh, forklift those, those pallets outside. We make two lines. I have a, a team of dedicated volunteers that come, and that range from anywhere from 6 to 12, just depending on who shows up. And uh, we'll have a line that is probably, uh, I would say, anywhere from a quarter mile to a half mile long that are waiting um, to get their boxes. Wow. 
Wow. Yeah. You know, sometimes when I hear about these uh, food box programs, um, you know, sometimes uh, I think of them as like a very small operation, like somebody in their house, in their living room has a bunch of boxes open and they're like just filling them with, uh, you know, different, uh, different foods and, and that's it. But you're talking like a warehouse and a forklift and <laughs> a big operation where you have hundreds um, of boxes and uh, thousands over the, the last couple of years, right? That's correct. So um, also I'll go back a little bit. So year one, we were doing 800 boxes total, 400 in Oneida, I think 200 in uh, Menominee and then 200 in Pottawatomie. Yeah. Last year, that was actually raised up to 1,800. We get our 400 and then the rest of those are then distributed out to the uh, other 10 federally recognized tribes in Wisconsin based off the need. Um, but before we even get those boxes, all their product is procured and then shipped to Feeding, Amer Feeding America in Northeast Wisconsin, mm -hmm. where they get a team of volunteers to come and pack every single one of those boxes before they can go out that door and then to the hubs that each tribe then has. Right, right. And uh, how did how did all tribes become involved in this? It seems like Oneida was uh, maybe the focused at first. Um, how, you know, why why did so many people just want to be involved in this program? Yeah, well, I definitely won't take the credit. I would say the Menominee Nation has been putting in by far the most work amount of time. Um, they're getting grants and hiring people out of them grants to move this initiative forward. So um, working out is just uh, reaching out, making the connections. I think some of the people are just interested, like you, reaching out, saying, you know, what's going on with the Tribal Elder Food Box? Mm. And, you know, are they continuing to reach through? So right now we're going through some different MOUs, uh, relationships between how do we work that between um, partners that are non-tribal and the tribal governments. Um, so yeah, it's it's awesome that we now we got all 11, and we have weekly calls on Tuesday. So we're staying on our toes. We're constantly looking for funding, grant funding. Uh, Feeding America National has been huge from proponent of that, giving us anywhere from 900 to 800 thousand dollar grants, mm -hmm. uh, because it's a budget of 1.2 million just for the food okay. to do all this. Um, so it's a big process and I think it's, it's causing a lot of a hope, I would say in, in, um, it just in Indian country in general, cause no matter who I talk to, this always comes up. Mm -hmm. So I think we started a little something that can be, you know, adapted in other, other reservations around the United States. Right. Right. And, um, you know, something that uh, farmers uh, and uh, food producers can learn from. What are some useful lessons that uh, some farmers and food growers and processors learned by taking place or taking part in this program? Yeah, so there's a, a lot. And it was uh, year one, we had a glaring hole that, you know, we're looking for indigenous producers to be a part of this this project. And there's a glaring hole that there isn't many. And there's a lot that are smaller on the lower end. So a lot of it was kind of coming together. Say so, for instance, we had two beef farmers 
they were approached to say, we need 1,800 units. Well, I don't have 18, I can't get you 1,800 units in, in four weeks, but I can get you half, I can get you 800, or I can get you 900. So then they would approach another producer to pull them nine and then pulling together so you're helping multiple producers. Um, some of them have never, maybe just they were selling at the farmer's market, so they never dealt with contracts. Um, they never dealt with having the ability to say, I need a 1,000 units of this. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's people with boots on the ground helping them with the technical assistance, bringing them through the paperwork, making sure that they were getting top dollar for their product. And so they're learning that we can do this. We can supply food, you know, beyond just our communities, but to communities all over the region. So from this, um, we, re- we have a recently uh, newfound group out of this tribe of the Food Box team is the um, Great Lakes Indigenous Food Coalition. Mm-hmm. So that becomes a proponent of advocating for this and then assisting others. It's still kind of in the works yet, but that's our official name group, and we're just running with it. Uh, we're going to continue to do this tribal elder food box again this year. Um, I think we did 6,000 boxes last year just in Oneida. And this year, again, we'll be doing another 6,000 boxes. So we distribute those boxes twice per month. Rough, roughly every other week, we do 400 and 400. And uh, you'd be surprised how fast we go, man. We go through 400 boxes. And I think our fastest was an hour and five minutes. We just had... 400 boxes gone just like that right wow and um you know some of these uh boxes are filled with well of course they're filled with like seasonal uh produce and uh proteins from some of the local uh you know uh producers there in the area uh do do folks maybe request like um uh, recipes and, and lessons on how to use some of these foods that may not be familiar to them? Yeah, so one part that I did miss is some of the other great products that are in there besides proteins. Hmm. So you're going to have, sometimes you're going to get maple sugar, sometimes you're going to get um, local honey and get different lettuces, carrots, potatoes, wild rice, corn mush flour, which actually comes directly from Oneida, from Ohilagu, which is a corn growers cooperative. We'll get stuff from the United Cannery, like apple butter, applesauce, jam, apples. Um, so each and every distribution, we actually have a newsletter that comes along with a producer highlight of one of the products in the boxes, along with a recipe or two along with that newsletter. And that comes out each and every week so we can provide those. Um, and then another thing I'm going to be working on is actually doing a I do some cooking and nutrition classes with, with the Oneida community, and we're going to look to focus some of those directly on the elder food boxes. So if we get elder food boxes, we pass them on on that Friday. We're going to hold a class that afternoon so we can try to teach some of the elders. Because some of the things people, you know, like cabbage, mm-hmm. um, sometimes you'll get some, some bok choy in there just because it's seasonal. So teaching some of the the people in our community how to use some of these products because they have huge health benefits that you can't see right all right well thank you so much uh marlon for that that's all the time we have for this episode of the menu on native america calling i'd like to say thank you to our other guests as well uh sean sherman and crystal wapipa
Join us tomorrow for a conversation about how Native people are reacting to Twitter's unpredictability in the resurgence of white supremacists and hate speech there. I'm Andy Murphy. The Indian Arts and Crafts Act protects authentic American Indian and Alaska Native artists and craftspeople and their art and craftwork. Under the act, it is illegal to market art or craftwork misrepresented as American Indian, Indian, Native American, or Alaska Native made, or as the product of a particular Indian tribe. Reporting potential act violations can be done at doi.gov IACB or at 1-888-ART-FAKE. Support provided by Indian Arts and Crafts Board. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanic Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.